This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With Blair right now, we're talking about uh, myths around personal bankruptcies, and I know it's kind of a favorite topic of yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much misinformation that's out there, whether it's, you know, you're trying to self-diagnose, you're going on Google and you're finding U.S. bankruptcy law and thinks that, you know, Mm. it, it applies here, or, you know, friends and family members, even if they seem very financially sophisticated, unless you've really sat in the eye of the storm, faced it yourself, or sat down with a real professional, quite often there's more misinformation than fact. So I think we're going to surprise some folks with the things we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point just to say again, uh, the difference between the American rules Mm -hmm. and the Canadian. Rules. Oh, yeah. So, so completely different. And two things just to take away in the American rules nothing you can do about student loans, nothing you can do about income taxes. In the Canadian rules, absolutely both of those can be solved. That's great. All right. So, let's say um, I'm needing some assistance with debt and uh, I come and see you and start the proposal process or the discussion about either bankruptcy or the proposal process. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who else finds out about that? So, that's a huge concern for people along with hey, what's going to happen to my credit. It's also who's going to know about this. Is yeah. my employer going to know or my you know friends going to know, family members, creditors, all of that? Um, the answer is it's a very short list of people that need to know and it is based on that need to know basis. So starting with the employer, there's no reason a trustee would ever have to speak to an individual's employer unless the individual has already been sued and their wages were getting taken. So if you don't pay a debt and someone takes you to court or if it's the government, they skip court, they can just go straight to your employer and they can take up to 30 to 50% of your wages. That's called a garnishee. And that's what sends people running through the door to a trustee because a trustee is the only person that can stop it. So typically the only reason that I need to speak to an employer is to stop that garnishee. I need to send them fax their HR department saying we're now in control. This garnishee has no force of effect. Please start giving this person back their full wages. And you can imagine how happy the individuals are that we can stop that typically the day they file for bankruptcy. So the information to the employer isn't actually coming from you guys at that point. They already know about it. Exactly. Somebody's come to them. Oh yeah. The, the embarrassing part is having the garnishee put on, not having the garnishee taken off typically. You know, that that's a positive thing. And quite often it's the employer's HR department that will refer them to us. So, you know, they'll say, yeah, we've had a number of people who've had garnishees in the past. They've done a proposal or they've done a bankruptcy. Everything is sorted out, but there's no reason employer needs to know anything about the details unless there's a garnishment. Even in a broader sense than that, who needs to know about the bankruptcy? You know, some people are under the impression there's a notice in the newspaper. Hmm. Almost never. So we do thousands of cases every year. I think personally, one of mine last year had a notice in the newspaper. The only reason for that is if someone files for bankruptcy and they have very significant assets, and I'm not talking about, you know, a house with some equity. I'm talking about, you know, a $50,000 investment account or things like that. Uh, The government requires us to put a one-day notice in the newspaper saying, okay, there's going to be a meeting to consider this estate. Happens, like I said, once a year in thousands of estates. In almost every case, there's no notice in the newspaper. There's nothing searchable online. It's very, very straightforward, a private proceeding between you, the people you owe money to, and then obviously my regulator, the superintendent of bankruptcy, and myself, the trustee, were informed. Okay. But again, it's only the newspaper. That's the only place that that information goes. 
if it has to go there. If it has and to go almo- at all. Almost never. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, how long does the bankruptcy process take? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's a couple of terms for it, the discharge or, or the exit time involved. What, yeah. what is that? So in general, much shorter than people think. So most of the time when people come into my office, they're thinking, hey, bankruptcy is going to take six, seven years or 10 years or, or whatever. The vast majority of people, 80% of people that file for bankruptcy, they're finished in nine months. That's incredible. Less than a year, nine months. The other folks who, and basically the vast majority of folks, that means that you're low income. And if you're low income, it means you're earning less than roughly $2,000 a month. Bankruptcy is only based on your monthly income. So you could owe a million dollars or you could owe $10,000. It's all based on what are you earning now? And if you're considered low income, bankruptcy is nine months. If you're not considered low income, bankruptcy lasts a year longer than that. So 21 months, still inside of two years. So it could be the worst debt burden you could could imagine hundreds of thousands of dollars in you know horrible situations you can be discharged in 9 to 21 months if it's your first time ever in bankruptcy okay how does it impact my credit card my uh, credit rating Well, anytime you don't pay your debts back in full, your credit's going to take a hit. Now, we see kind of two types of people when they come to us. There are folks that have perfect credit because they've just kept every minimum payment up to date, but they're never going to pay all the debt off um, because, you know, there's just too much debt that's out there. So their credit might look good and it's going to take a hit. We also see folks where the credit's already bad because they've missed payments for a while and, you know, they're already being sued and things like that. So wherever you're at, bankruptcy essentially is going to reset your credit. So when you finish your bankruptcy, it's going to show that you've been in bankruptcy. And for the next six years, if somebody pulls a credit report, they're going to see that a bankruptcy has been filed. It doesn't mean they're not going to give you credit for six years. And most of the time, people after a bankruptcy are actually a much better credit risk than they were before. Because coming out of a bankruptcy, they owe nobody anything. They've just come through a very serious legal proceeding nobody takes lightly. So the first person that treats them with respect and makes them a client, typically they're going to get a client for life and the banks know this. So we've seen people two to three years after bankruptcy getting credit cards with no crazy risk premiums, getting mortgages with no crazy risk premiums, even though it's noted the fact that you've dealt with the issues is positive. Don't plan that the day after you're discharged from bankruptcy, the day after the nine or 21 months, you'll start to get offers of credit. And that's not a good thing anyway. No. But typically if you do the right things, two to three years is a reasonable horizon to rebuild your credit. So it will say that I was bankrupt, that I had to file, but then it will also start to show the improvements that I've made or the yeah. or the, the credit that I've been able to accumulate since that point. Exactly. So the bankruptcy is going to drop off eventually. And what we encourage you to do as part of the financial counseling sessions is to get a secured credit card. That's where you start off, you give a deposit, you get a card with a lower limit. Every time you use that card, it puts a positive story on your credit. After one or two years, 12 or 24 four positive stories on your credit, that bankruptcy is going to be less and less relevant. It's really going to matter, as you said, Elaine, what have you done since then? Right. And you're going to walk me through that if I come to you with this issue. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing that I think is really important for folks to realize that you're, you you just don't get all this, uh, the, the bankruptcy done, and then you're sort of on your own. Yeah. You can access, you get counseling assistance, and you get... Um, coaching, for lack of a better word, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, So when someone sits down with us to file for bankruptcy, I've had people walk into the office thinking they're going to sign documents, they're going to walk out and all the debt's gone. I'm like, no, it's it's not quite like that. Um, You know, 
some people have used the car wash where it's not that you're you know, just scrubbing off all the dirt on the outside, all the debt and leaving the inside unchanged. We really care about the person internally. So part of the bankruptcy is we're going to be together a minimum of nine months. We're going to meet at least twice for counseling. And as much as you reasonably need our help, we're going to do our best for you. So we're going to tell you, here's all the great things to do to rebuild your credit. We're going to talk to you about the pitfalls. And if you can believe it, the number one reason people run into trouble when they're rebuilding their credit and get denied mortgages is unpaid cell phone bills. Hmm. So they take everything seriously, but sometimes they forget to pay Fido or Rogers or whatever, and that can tank you more than anything else. So we'll give you all those pitfalls. Interesting. Now, um, uh, the other piece of it, of course, is that fear, mm-hmm. um, not the not the fear of what other people will think, but the fear of losing absolutely everything. Yeah. And and you you say that's a myth as well. Absolutely a myth. Just about everybody when they file for bankruptcy retains all of their assets. And I'll explain why. So, you know, in theory, when you file for bankruptcy, you're surrendering your assets to your creditors. But there's an interesting interplay of laws. And the province of BC has created certain exemptions that say no matter what, even if you were sued and no bankruptcy or whatever, someone's coming to take your stuff. There's a base level of assets that everyone in the province is entitled to retain. That includes your household furniture. Household furniture worth up to $4,000 at a garage sale value, which is almost every case. I've never seen more than $4,000 at a garage sale. So no one's going to come and take your furniture. Your clothing and anything you need for a medical condition, that's exempt to an unlimited amount. No one's going to come and take anything out of your closets, take your CPAP machine, anything like that, you're going to be fine. Your vehicle, you're not allowed to have, you know, the new Maserati or whatever, but you're allowed to have a reasonable vehicle worth up to $5,000. If you file for bankruptcy, nothing's going to happen to that. Huge one, and this only changed in 2009. Before this, it was the most unjust situation in Canada, in my opinion, is RRSPs. Mm. RRSPs are now fully protected. You can never be forced to cash in your RRSPs, even if you have way more debts than what your RRSPs are worth. You don't have to cash them in. Previous to that, to 2009, you did have to cash them in. So the government forced you to compromise your retirement. No more. The only way your RRSPs are at risk is if you take them out yourself. Yeah, and I think let's just focus on that point for just a second. We've talked about that issue before, that sometimes when folks get in a pickle over debt, that's the first thing they do is they turn to that savings that they've been working so hard on to start paying off. And and you say that's just not a good idea. It's generally the worst possible thing you can do, and it's just based on misinformation. So quite often, the person that they're taking advice from, it might be a collection agent or it might Mm. be somebody at the bank who's, you know, not a real advisor for them. It's if anybody knows the facts and with eyes wide open decides, hey, I'd want to compromise my retirement to pay off my debts. Okay, fine, and do that. Every person that I've sat down with when I've explained the rules, they was just saying, well, why didn't anybody tell me this? Why is this not more publicized? And all I can say is we're doing what we can here, but there are certainly some vested interests people would have in making sure individuals don't know that their RSPs are safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Another myth, um, it that bankruptcy affects your ability to travel, uh, whether it be uh, just uh, uh, nationwide or out of the country with a passport. Yeah, so very simply, no impact on passport, no impact on citizenship, no test, are you debt-free before you can leave or enter this country? We get that that question a lot. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. in some countries around the world, it might be that way. Um, And in Vancouver, you know, in Canada, we're a nation of immigrants. So some people have, you know, certain baggage from their own countries. And yeah, bankruptcy is very intrusive in some societies. 
societies and is very difficult. Canada is not like that. You can move, you can travel, do whatever. You have certain responsibilities, but they're all reasonable. And nobody, and that information doesn't get passed along to wherever you happen to be going. Like it doesn't follow you. That's right. No database to my knowledge. It's really important information Mm -hmm. to know. So we talked about uh, the fear of losing everything, which I think is a big one that folks go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that's going to happen. And it doesn't, which is great. Mm -hmm. And the time involved, can we just go back to that for one one more time? Because I think it's really important, the the length of time that it takes uh, to be done with a bankruptcy. Yeah. So you're going to fit into one of two categories. If you need to file a bankruptcy, you'll either fit into a low income category which again, roughly under $2,000 a month take home income for a single person. If that's your situation, bankruptcy lasts for nine months. If that's not your situation, meaning you're earning above that amount, it's a year difference. It's 21 months. Okay. Far off the six or seven years most people think. Right, exactly. Now, where did that even come from, that that <laughs> huge long length of time, right? right. That's like a, an old fishtail or something, exactly. isn't it? Exactly, yep. Excellent. If any of this information, if you want any more of it, uh, Sands and Associates, Blair Manton, he's the guy to talk to. Sands and Associates, you can call them. Very easy. They've got offices all over the Lower Mainland as well as in the interior and on Vancouver Island. 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Shannon Sims is on the line right now. She's a professional member of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Uh, she is a certified uh, counselor. She works with, uh, with folks, helping folks with mental health and addiction issues, has a specialty in problem gambling, and is also a qualified insolvency counselor and does a lot of work with Sands and Associates. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Let's talk about problem gambling. Uh, I have a friend that I spent some time with uh, on Facebook this week who was uh, t- uh, sharing with all of his other friends that he was participating in a big uh, poker tournament in Las Vegas. And uh, uh, he's a pretty upstanding guy and has a great career and all that kind of stuff, but loves to play po- uh, play poker. Is is that a problem gambler, or is that somebody who's who's doing it for fun? Well, gambling is any experience of wagering or risking something of value on an unpredictable outcome, where those valuables may be won or lost. Any gambling behavior that compromises, disrupts, or damages personal, family, or work pursuits would be considered to have crossed over into the realm of a problem behavior. Okay. So it sounds like it's more on the impact um, necessarily than, than behavior. So if he's you know, able to, to play his poker and be successful um, and there's not a negative impact, Shannon, that, that doesn't sound like it's a problem. Right. So one of the things that we track are time, energy, money, consequences, and then other things people do for fun or entertainment. These are all some of the ways that we tap into whether it's becoming a problem or not. So if he's not doing anything else but going to work and then going to Vegas to gamble. Yes. You might want to look at that. Right. (laughs) As well as if people are starting to think about gambling as a way to make money rather than as an opportunity, they expect to lose and hope to win. 
um, it's an, an opportunity or a chance to win money. It should not be thought of as a way to make money. Mm. That's also a risk factor. That's interesting. And uh, yeah, I've had a couple of experiences with folks in my uh, sort of, you know, circle. Uh, And one in particular had a very serious gambling issue. And it was all about making money. Like Mm -hmm. there was no, there was no fun involved. It was, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. And this is how I'm going to do it. And my gosh, it didn't end well. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Shannon, <laughs> but you know, problem gambling, right? It's it, right. it's devastating. It it's can be devastating to families, especially. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, is there a, a typical profile of of someone that would be at risk of becoming a problem gambler, Shannon? There's no typical profile of a person who's at risk. Um, the problem transcends age, gender, intelligence, socioeconomic status, ethnicity. Theoretically, anyone who gambles could potentially develop a problem with gambling. Um, the problem exists on a continuum, so there's different degrees or levels of severity. The key is catching it sooner rather than later in order to minimize the harm. There are common risk factors associated with the development of a problem with gambling, and there are also common motivations once it has become a problem. So some of the risk factors... Yeah, talk about those. Yeah. Availability or accessibility of gambling. Simply living near a gaming establishment can put someone at risk. Thinking about time online, online gambling available 24-7, that's, it's a risk factor, the the simple fact that it's available. Winning is also a risk factor for developing a problem. This sets the brain up with a rewarding and reinforcing experience that the brain then expects will happen routinely. So big wins create excitement, and small wins help to build tolerance and expectation. Um, Misunderstanding the odds, misunderstanding the concept of randomness and independence of events. Um, For people in this particular group, anxiety or depression is a result of the gambling problem rather than a contributor. Then there are the people who have existing challenges with depression or anxiety, or they have a tendency to use escape as a preferred way of coping. They may be susceptible to boredom. Um, or around the time gambling begins, they may experience a stressful life event or a life transition like retirement, divorce, loss of a job or illness, and have a lack of support at that time. For this group, their introduction to gambling often provides them with a way of coping with or escaping the negative moods, or it's providing them with exciting stimulation. Okay, so everything you've said, the one thing you didn't say is that um, it's hereditary in any way. And, and, we can, and we can, I mean, I mean, it's not, right? Well, there are genetic predispositions okay. towards the problem, um, but there is no direct or causal link. Uh, just because it does show up in one family member doesn't mean necessarily that it will sh- show up or manifest in another. But there is research that indicates there is a genetic predisposition um, but it doesn't mean that you're predisposed, that you are guaranteed to manifest the problem yourself. The one thing, too, I, th- I thought of when you were talking was the online gambling. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. even have to leave my home. Right. It, it can be two in the morning and I've got my laptop up and all of a sudden I have uh, a little persona on the screen. I'm actually sitting at the table with the other uh 
personas. I'm yeah. trying to think of the, the right word. <laughs> the to avatars. Just, uh, the avatars, exactly. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, the, the folks that set up the online gambling situation, they are, they're counting on me uh, enjoying that aspect of actually sitting at a table, aren't they? Yes. The, the, the gambling is designed to entice people to remain engaged with it. Um, so there's lots of stimulation attached to gambling, visually, auditorily. Um, the brain loves the experience of um, the sensory experience of the gambling activity and the gambling environment. It's really interesting, and the awareness of gambling, too. I mean, just even the whole lottery uh, situation, right? Yeah. And, and I never, you know, I hadn't thought about that for a long time, That, but, but that's part of this. Sure it is. Now, Shannon, a lot of the clients that you and I have, have worked uh, together on, you know, they come in, they've got a, a gambling or, or money problems or things like that. They get counseling through a bankruptcy and a proposal, but they also get some specific gambling assistance as well. And I know if I'm sitting down with somebody, a couple of first questions are, have you self-excluded and have you gotten specific counseling? I wonder if you can talk um, briefly about the resources that are available. If someone's listening to this and saying, hey, that could be me, I've got some of these behaviors, what can they do to get help within the province of BC? Absolutely. So the responsible, the BC Responsible and Problem Gambling Program offers free counseling to individuals, couples, and families. We run a variety of groups for additional support. The BC Lottery Corporation also has a voluntary self-exclusion program where individuals who want to take a break from their gambling can enlist the gaming establishment's help in preventing them from actually entering the premises. Um, there are online resources available. Our website, BC Problem Gambling Sorry, bcresponsiblegambling.ca has a lot of helpful information about responsible and problem gambling. Problemgambling.ca has some helpful assessment tools and guides for people either experiencing the problem or family members who may be affected by the person who gambles. And there's online support for people who aren't ready to connect with a counselor, like gamtalk.org, which offers a live chat, a discussion forum, and stories of hope, and is based in Canada. Some some terrific resources out there. Uh, also, I want to throw in, in terms of uh, a website, if any of this information resonates with you, www.simscounseling.com. That's Shannon's website. She's a professional member of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Uh, she also does counseling within the Sands and Associates uh, umbrella uh, for folks that are, uh, are dealing with debt and debt issues, part of that counseling team. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands and Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands and Associates experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website sands-trustee.com for more information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line is Mark Fidget, who's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker. He's got over 20 years of experience. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network and the driver behind www.advancedequity.ca. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, Elaine. I appreciate it. 
Boy, oh boy, mortgages, housing, very, very hot topic uh, all over the place. Buying a home and mortgages, super hot topic in the Lower Mainland. And and, uh, we're so glad that you're going to be able to give us some mortgage industry insights into this. Let's talk about uh, what should someone consider when getting into a mortgage? What's the first thing you should think about if you haven't done it before? Well, one of the things is getting pre-approved and... One of the ads I see running by one of the big banks right now is how to get pre-qualified by calling a number and doing it in 60 seconds. And I think this is a big confusion here, Hmm. the term pre-approved versus pre-qualified. Yeah, because I saw that ad too, Mark, and I thought 60 seconds, how can they reasonably know very much? So I assume there's a big difference pre-approved versus pre-qualified. Well, huge difference, Blair. And I mean, you'd be surprised to hear how many calls I receive whereby clients are super disappointed when they're told by a bank that they're pre-qualified and really it's just asking them a few questions and from that determining an amount that they qualify for and obviously there's a lot more to the pre-approval process than that so is it pre-qualification does that you know is that worth anything if i'm going to to complete a transaction i've got a pre-qualification you know honestly blair it's not worth the paper it's printed on Hmm. i mean Nobody's looked at your credit. Nobody's confirmed your income. Nobody's looked at what other debts you really have. So it, there's a lot more to it. Right. So, so the bank has a lot of work to do before they get to that final yes at that point. Correct. Right. Okay. So that, that's definitely interesting, Mark. Again, I've seen those ads. And again, 60 seconds, what can you do? But um, if it seems too good to be true, it, it often is. Um, I guess, what are some other factors people should consider if they're, if they're looking at a, a mortgage in terms of how much mortgage to get? Because you know, some people, they go in, whatever the bank will loan me, I'm going to take the maximum. But that's not always the smart way to come at it. How should you figure out so you don't end up with too much mortgage? Well, one of the things we do with our clients, Blair, is we work backwards. So I sit down with a client and I ask them, what their true comfort payment is. And a lot of people don't think of it that way. They're all sort of brainwashed into, what's my maximum mortgage approval? Hmm. So when they really start thinking about what their comfort level is, we work backwards. And if someone says, listen, I feel comfortable with no more than $2,000 a month, then I work backwards and it's easy. I say, okay, well, that, that corresponds to a certain mortgage amount and add that to your down payment, you have a purchase price. And, you know, like I say, it's great to know your maximum mortgage, but that comfort level is really an important thing. Because that's the one that you're going to get stuck with, right? That's the one that you're going to have to deal with every month. Well, for sure. And I mean, I, we're in historically low interest rates. So it's, it's really something to keep in the back of your mind in terms of where can my payments go moving forward? Because it's easy to over leverage yourself. Is that true? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, there's no doubt about it. We're in a a very hot market, as you, uh, as you mentioned. And, you know, it's easy to get enticed into paying more than you can really feel comfortable paying. Yeah, Mark, I sit down with my clients quite often. We look at their their mortgage and a lot of them, you know, especially if they're over mortgage, they're on a variable rate mortgage, maybe it's 2% now. And, you know, we, we start to run through, well, if interest rates went up by a half point or even, a, you know, a full percentage point here, you know, that's a massive increase in the amount of interest that you've got to pay on a variable mortgage. Even a small, you know, interest rate increase is going to, to have an impact. So I encourage, you know, folks to, to really sensitize, you know, take a look at different options um, about, you know, if our interest rates rise, will I still be able to afford that type of a payment. I assume that's a discussion you would have with your clients as well. Absolutely, Blair. And we kind of take it a little bit further. We sit down with them and they ask them realistically where they think mortgage rates are going to be in five years. And if someone says to me, well, realistically, I think, you know, a five-year term might be 
4%. And let's say, for example, we're getting in at, you know, under 3%. We try to encourage them to make an increased payment hmm. every year we increase it. So it goes towards principal. So it's basically, it's, it's a way of allevi- alleviating that payment shock because, you know, I mean, let's face it, five years from now, it's pretty... I don't know about you, but if I was a betting guy, I would say the chances of rates being higher are pretty much 100%. Yeah, there's only kind of one direction they can, they can go, I assume, here, right? For sure. Now, Mark, as, as people start to go through the, the journey of, of getting qualified for a mortgage, what are the main factors a lender would, would consider? Um, and I wonder if there are some that are more surprising than, than others. I know one um, stat that surprised me to no end was that, you know, more mortgages are denied based on unpaid cell phone bills than on other factors. So, you know, the littlest bill can sometimes have the biggest biggest impact. Uh, what do people need to, need to consider when um, they're making a mortgage application? What do lenders look at? Well, you know, you've, you've mentioned something, Blair, that leads you to credit, and that's probably the most important thing and probably the first thing that lenders look at. And I think that takes us back to question number one in a bit. A pre-approval looks at your credit versus being pre-qualified doesn't. And lenders mm, really right. look at your credit. They put it under a magnifying glass. Right. You'd be, you'd be surprised uh, to hear that 80% of people have errors on their credit report, 20, 25% of which are serious enough to cause a person to be turned down for a mortgage. Wow. So one of the things, Holy. yeah, I mean, it's, it's surprising, and most people don't even think about it. One of the things I encourage my clients to do is pull their own credit bureau at least once or twice a year, and you can do that for free by going to equifax.ca. Yeah, there's fascinating stuff on there. I know when I pulled mine, Mark, I was one of the, the 80% that had some errors. I found addresses, I found different accounts. So, you know, it sounds like from, from the stats here, odds are you will find something. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've had clients turn down for mortgages because they've had a, a parking ticket in Vancouver that was sent collect, to collections that they didn't even know about. And this is just one, that's just a simple thing. I mean, you'd be amazed at what you find on there. Hmm. And finding it out at the 11th hour, that's not the right time because correcting these things can take a little bit of time. So, you know, that, that could really scuttle a deal, I'm thinking potentially, right? Absolutely. And I mean, you're in the business, you know, that, that credit is so, so important. Are there some tips that you could give uh, could give us to, I don't know, let's say, like boost the chances of you being approved? What can you do to improve your chances, Mark? Well, one of the things I encourage clients to do is pay down their debt as much as possible because, you know, when, when we look at someone's pre-approval, we're looking at what other debts do they have, and the more debt that they have, it kind of lo- it's like a scale. It lowers their purchasing capacity. So, you know, debt's one big thing. Keeping your credit score high is another thing. And a lot of people don't realize that they actually can do certain things to keep their credit going up. And one of the things is obviously, you know, make your payments on time. The other thing that people don't realize is credit utilization is a huge, huge thing. And what that is, is if you've got a a credit card with a limit of, say, $1,000, the credit bureau as a computer-generated score wants to see you keep your limits at below 30%. And most people don't realize that. They're running at maximum capacity, and each time the credit bureau checks, it reduces their score. Well, that's Hmm. interesting. So you want to have multiple accounts, ideally, and use them at 30% or less. For sure, Blair, and that's a great idea. You know, if you've got one card and you've got a credit limit of $1,000 and you're into it to 800 it wouldn't be a bad idea to get another card in to split the balances because that's going to definitely increase your chances of not being penalized in terms of the, the way the credit bureau establishes scores. 
I know that uh, uh, at one point when we were looking at purchasing a house, we really looked at the idea of having a basement suite or a, a second suite as a bit of a mortgage helper. That's got to be uh, that's got to be an incentive for folks. Well, you know, absolutely, Elaine. Especially in the price ranges we're in right now. So I, I, I definitely uh, advise clients if if they're not really hitting that price range that they need to be in. One of the ways to do, you know, to sort of get higher is to look at uh, places. And we like to encourage legal suites because more lenders will look at the legal suite income versus the illegal suites, although there's tons of illegal suites out there. Yeah, no, fair enough, Mark. That was my mistake. I didn't mean to say illegal suites because, yeah, we don't want to encourage people to get illegal suited homes. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's lots out there and yeah. everybody knows it and it's kind of grandfathered in, but... In terms of lenders and uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, like CMHC, they're they're mostly looking at the income from legal suites. Absolutely, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Now, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so so Mark, in, implicit in the discussion we're having is, you know, clearly you're you're an expert in the the mortgage market. Um, for folks that aren't familiar with the benefits of working with a mortgage broker, can you give a sense of, you know, why would you work with a broker and how would you choose the right broker to work with as compared to dealing directly with the bank? Uh, my experience is that you tend to get much better results to working with a broker. Well, absolutely, Blair, and that's a great question. One I often get and. Um, People don't realize that banks make their mortgage money in three particular ways. Um, one is, as most know, and this is the most popular way, is interest rate. And obviously, the better the interest rate the bank can get you to agree to, the more money they make. But two of the ways that a lot of people don't realize banks make big money is one in, in the penalty, and the other is in the renewal. And when we talk about the penalty, people often ask me, why do banks have posted rates? Because it's almost like the sticker price on a car. Nobody ever gets it. And what people don't realize is banks have the posted rate for one particular reason, and that's to calculate their penalties. And one of the things I always tell clients is even if you take, a say, a five-year term, most people don't expect to make changes within that five years. But life happens and things happen. And I tell you, I've seen some humongous penalties because of this. So the advantage of a mortgage broker then, Mark? Well, firstly, we're putting clients into mortgages that aren't being, they're not using posted rates to calculate the penalty. Mm-hmm. We're, we have, I mean, the fact is we have access to probably the lowest mortgage rates in the industry. And one of the other things that, and, and this is really a shame, uh, when you get to renewal time, banks are very competitive in the initial stages to try and lure you in. But when they do the renewal, one of the things they do is they send out a renewal document and it's never their best rates. But the unfortunate thing about this is 80% of people simply pick a term, pick a rate and sign it and send it back in, not even realizing that they're not being rewarded for what I would say is five years. If you're in a term of five years, five years of great business. Exactly. And uh, just in closing, uh, uh, something that a mortgage broker will do is I want to remind you, they have their, they access the lowest mortgage rates that you can get in the industry. Uh, Mark Fidget, he's uh, a great guy. And if you want more information from him, access him very easily. His website is www.advancedequity.ca. He's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has loads of experience in this business. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. 
Hey, thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Blair. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Blair, we're going to talk about the impact of a person being in debt and the impact that that has on your spouse or your partner. Right. And I've got to think right off the bat, it's significant, I guess, emotionally, Mm -hmm. but not so much when it comes to sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, and that's a good way to say it, Elaine, is I think, you know, people assume that if you marry somebody or you become common law, you cohabitated for a couple of years, people assume that that suddenly means that, you know, you've married that person's debt. You owe the same amount that they owe, and if they don't pay, you've got to be on the hook. So I've sat down with couples a lot in, in my role at Sands and Associates, and I've often wished, hey, I wish you guys came to me six months ago before you did X, Y, and Z, because quite often they're very surprised to figure out that actually couples' finances, even if they're married, are still quite separate, and sometimes the right decision is not for one partner to pay off the other person's debt. It's for both partners to investigate the solutions that will work out best for them, and quite often that's the better way collectively to go forward. Yeah, I think that's a really significant myth because I I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have said, oh no, if I'm marrying you, what yours is, you know, yours is mine and mine is yours, and that includes debt. Yeah. And, you know, there's, with everything, there's an element of of some truth in, in the myth, and, you know, if... God forbid, if you marry somebody and the marriage goes south and you have to divorce, then yes, debts that you've incurred collectively, even if it's in one person's name, because it was incurred as part of the marriage, it's known as, you know, basically a family debt and that type of a debt, you know, could be split. So if I was divorcing from my spouse, my spouse might say, well, I've got, you know, $10,000 in debt to RBC just in my name. I hold you accountable for 5000 of that and the law would support that. Got it. But that's only on divorce or dissolution. Um, Absent any of that, if I owe money to Royal Bank, Royal Bank can't come to my spouse and try to collect. They can't attach to any assets of my spouse. They can't even call my spouse and make them aware of that debt. It's a contractual relationship between me and Royal Bank. And it's not Royal, or whichever bank, not beating up a Royal. Sure. <laughs> it's, and it's not, it's not the bank's business that I've right. suddenly gotten married or cohabitated or anything like that. The contractual relationship has not changed. That's interesting. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was this uh, poll mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Ontario that says a significant number of relationships face debt challenges from the very start. Right. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, and, and what the poll also showed is that if you don't discuss it, if you got a challenge and each person just puts their head in the sand, well, then what's more likely is you're both going to go further into debt rather than collectively work together and get yourselves out of debt so that you can, you know, begin to build wealth and buy assets and things like that. So uh, most people are starting with debt problems, yes, but the communication is really what makes the difference is are you going to, you know, I, I've suggested widely, we've done blog posts about this, that, you know, maybe not the first or second date, but one of the, the dates before you start to live together you should bring your credit report and yeah. you should get your, your partner to do the same and <laughs> you'll have a great so time. Rom- I know. <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> oh yeah, get the, get the wine stains on it. No, uh, but it, I think it's really important to be that transparent just to, to let somebody know, you know, here's what I'm facing or, or what I'm not facing because the way that you make decisions as a couple could be completely different. And again, definitely if one person has no debt and somebody's got a bunch of debt, the right answer is usually not that the person with no debt suddenly pays off the other person's
person's debt. Usually there's a much better alternatives to that. But it is more of a moral obligation versus a legal obligation for me to tell Joe Blow, who I'm thinking of getting married to, mm-hmm. that I owe $100,000, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no legal obligation because you owing that money, again, getting married doesn't suddenly make Joe owe that money. Got it. But yeah, and the idea of, you know, more communication is better better than less. Um, yeah, I, I would encourage couples to be very open in the early stages of the relationship. And again, a great tool to do that is to just get the credit reports, sit them down in front of each other, and then just see what you've got there. Because quite often, this is a, a good spinoff, is quite often um, credit reports aren't accurate. You know, whether there's identity theft or things like that, you might find addresses you've never lived at, accounts you've never had open that are actually dragging down your credit score. And if you both sit there and you're looking at them, you can say, okay, I'm going to clean this up, you clean that up. And then that can be part of you guys planning on how you're going to have a financial future together. Can you can you explain to us how, how, uh, how a credit rating even gets... Uh, built yep. if it's if they could be so inaccurate at yeah. the same time. So there, you know, it's the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. So credit rating is only as good as the information that's fed to it. And you can just imagine, you know, close to 30 million uh, citizens in, in Canada. Um, a big subset of those have credit reports and each person's credit report. There's information about their employment, their addresses, every account, every payment. Um, it's not atypical to find that just something gets reported incorrectly. And over time, it could be many things reported incorrectly. So everybody in Canada has the right to get their credit report once a year for free from each of the bureaus. I do it every year. And again, I'm amazed at some of the things that come up there. And, you know, my name is often misspelled as Martin. So I think, you know, sometimes they put in Martin and someone else, and then suddenly that gets into my bureau. You know, if you've got a common last name and a somewhat common first name, quite often you'll find that things are in your bureau where they might not be. Oh, that's interesting. And they might, you know, the time to clear this up is not when you've applied for the mortgage and the bank's got your credit report right up in front. That's too late because this stuff can take some time. Right. So a good spinoff to being open with your, your partner is, yeah, you'll actually clean up your credit at the same time if there are any inaccuracies there. That's interesting because I don't think I've ever seen my credit rating card mm-hmm. or, you know, my information about me. Yeah. So it'd be interesting if, if, if you pull it and you tell me if it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to figure, I'm going to figure that out, see if it is. Yeah. Uh, so if a married person is filing a personal bankruptcy, um, you've sort of answered this already. Uh, their spouse isn't bankrupt. Right. Right? Yeah. So absolutely their spouse is not bankrupt. So somebody can go through a bankruptcy and it doesn't bankrupt the entire couple or the entire household or anything like that. Um, So, you know, quite often if it's a husband and wife situation and, you know, the wife might have a student loan from, you know, 20 years ago and now she's not working, she could do a bankruptcy. She might be considered low income and the bankruptcy might be over in, in nine months. Whereas comparing the household, if they decided, okay, we want to pay this off together, you know, if it was a big student loan, that could take years and years um, of income from the family, but not income specifically from the wife if her income is low. So in those situations, again, it could be a better a better choice for one partner to deal with their debts and the other person not to contribute by trying to pay off those debts. That's really good information. Now, there are a couple situations where, yeah, if your spouse owes something, you may still owe it, um, but generally you have to be deliberate in those. And one would be if you've co-signed. So be very, very, very careful. If you're ever asked to co-sign something, accept that you are signing to be responsible for 100% of the debt. And so just be aware you're giving another pocket to dip into that your creditors would not otherwise have. So co-signing everything that your your spouse automatically owes, I wouldn't do that. I would really go on a case-by-case basis. Why am I required to co-sign? 
in usual um, situations, it won't be to your benefit to be a cosigner. So that's really important. But another one, and this one is a little bit insidious, is if you get a supplementary card um, for a credit card that your spouse has. If you, you know, banks are always offering this, you know, just get your spouse a, a supplementary card. Yes. It can be a bit of a gray area, but I've seen individuals held accountable if they've got a supplementary card and they've used it, even if it's not their account, they're just an extra card holder on them. They've suddenly made it a little bit more gray that they might start to owe that, that oh, money. Oh, that's really interesting. And because credit card companies, God bless them, mm-hmm. love to hand out credit cards. Oh, yeah. And they don't, and you really don't have to be of any financial means or substance in order to get one. Right. So an easy test is if your name is on the statement, if both partners' names are on the statement, that's usually a good indication. They would try to collect from both. If it's one person's name, keep it that way. Don't get the supplementary card. Don't co-sign. Just keep all the debt problems localized to whoever brought them to the relationship. Okay. And in in wrapping up, what if uh, the person opts to file a consumer proposal? How does that impact my spouse? In 30 seconds. It generally doesn't. It doesn't. (laughs) In in three seconds. No, it's very, very straightforward. So if one person's got a debt problem, they file a consumer proposal, it just makes the household better off because now that person's debt payments aren't $1,000 a month, they're probably $200 a month, and then suddenly you're better off. Excellent. If you have more questions or want more information, check out uh, Sands & Associates, their website, sands-trustee.com, or or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.